0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show. This is very important. You are going to the St. Regis Hotel.
1: Salvador Dalí is there. You are going to keep an eye on him and make sure he paints. Paul James. Welcome to Darliland. Oh, my God.
2: Tell us,
0: Jesus Christ, superstar. Who are you?
1: James Linton? Gala is the power. She does the deals and handles the money.
3: Give us money,
4: we give you a painting.
1: Whatever you do, you must not insult her. I need a new assistant. I will borrow this boy. Because if you do, you are out. This part is hungry. I need many beautiful (laughs) houses. Is he getting any work done? We open in three weeks. How is it
0: working for darling?
3: We need money.
0: It's like I landed on another planet,
4: I belong. I need you. What's going on? It's complicated. So this is a fake. Paint! You stole from Dali.
3: Salvador Dali is
4: a genius. I need her.
1: to push me. Dali, there are bad things
0: going on around you.
1: I give you everything! Felix, don't take him seriously
0: anymore.
4: I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Death, it frightens me. And this is the basis of my inspiration. The paint
5: disappears, becomes reality. Sometimes it is so
4: hard being Dali.
0: And those were scenes from Daliland. The new biopic burrowing into the later life and times of eccentric genius Salvador Dali, and in particular his simultaneous muse and domestic slave, the both adored and abused Gala, portrayed in the film by German actress Barbara Sukowa, And Sukowa is our guest on the show to talk about Daliland, directed by Canadian filmmaker Mary Harron, known for her politically focused, uniquely framed works like American Psycho and I Shot Andy Warhol, and casting male public figures in volatile connections with women. And Sukhova, along with her gala in Daliland, delves into the politically outspoken women she tends to play on screen, including in Margaret van Trade's Rosa Luxemburg and van Trotte's Marianne and Julianne based on the life of German Red Army Faction Revolutionary Ulrike Meinhof and Sukaba addressing in this conversation as well one resolutely discerning line she speaks in Dalilan, encompassing many women's lives in connection to capricious male instincts. Quote, All these women who kiss your feet at parties, but I'm the one who cuts your toenails and brings your coffee. Here's Barbara Sukhova. Hi. Hello and welcome. Mm -hmm. What was it about portraying Gala, The Wife of Dali and Dalilan that led you to want to be part of this film?
3: Um, Well, there were several elements. Uh, It it was a really good script. Um, I liked the director. Once she offered me the the role, I checked out her movies, uh, which I found all very fascinating and wonderful. And uh, then I really liked that it was about a marriage of two older people, you don't see that too often. Mm. And it is two very, uh, they are two very eccentric people, two very special people, and uh, who have a hard time accepting their age and their declining health and all these things. And I thought they are very complex characters, and uh, then, a big draw was for me also that Ben Kingsley was playing Dali, which I thought was a fantastic idea, and so that's why I agreed to play this role.
0: And what did you figure out about Gala in order to portray her? And were any of your own ideas about her based on your research into her life?
3: Well, before I was offered the part, I knew very little about her. I knew that she was Dali's muse—that so I knew—and of course I had seen her image in his paintings. Uh, but then I did some research, and uh, I was quite astonished that uh, most of the things that were said about her were very negative. Mm. And I read one book, a biography about her, and I had the feeling the author really hated her. And I was wondering, why are you writing a book about this woman if you can't find anything to love about her? And uh, so I did more research, and uh, and I think she was just. A- very unusual, fascinating character. Um, she was Russian, she um, lived in France, she was married to Elouard, one of the uh, great uh, French poets. Uh, she was very free in her sexuality, she, um, she had no uh, respect for anybody's partner. She took whatever she, well, she liked to. She lived in the Ménage à Trois with uh, Elouard and Max Ernst, another fantastic painter. And uh, she was she was rich, you know, through her marriage. And uh, when she met Dali, she gave all this up. And uh, she basically moved with him into a shack at the beach in Spain. And um, that was quite a sacrifice. And this young man, Dali, was very strange. When she first met him, she was there with her husband and with, um, I think it was Max Ernst, no, with a Belgian art dealer. Um, and Marguerite, I think, uh, he was always hysterically laughing. He seemed like very immature. He was also 10 years younger than she, very odd, very strange. And she was so fascinated that she stayed with him, and uh, she was able to stabilize him. And you say stabilize? Stabilize Mm -hmm. him. And I think uh, he would not have been what he had become without her. Mm. And I found that fascinating Mm. about this woman.
0: Now you have one of the most unforgettable lines in the film that is so special about your portrayal expressing Gala's feelings as a woman who is both adored and abused when she says to Dali all those women who kiss your feet at your parties but i'm the one who cuts your toenails brings your coffee what does that mean to you as both the character and as a woman in the real world
3: uh yeah i mean she felt Uh, especially when they went to America, she felt that she was just not respected enough. And it was not easy for her to see uh, all this because she she knew her part in his success and she had no credit. They were all just fawning um, over him. And uh, I think she had a hard time with this. I think in the scene when she's in the car and she talks to the young, men and she said that how she went out and tried to sell his art when nobody wanted it. Uh, I think uh, it was hard for her and um, yeah, it is remarkable, but she stayed with him. Yeah.
0: Now you've played a number of real life women. What draws you to their lives, to portraying them and the challenges such as Rosa Luxemburg in that Margaret Van I do
3: so, because in uh, in Rosa Luxemburg, it was very much, I mean, the film was very much about her struggle to uh, have a personal life that she wanted so much, and a political life, and the personal life that she couldn't get. She wanted children, she wanted a relation, and it just didn't work out. And uh, if you read her personal letters, they are lovely, poetic, uh, very warm Letters, whereas politically, you know, they caught uh, the hysterical materialism, or uh, they called a man's monster. So um, I I like this tension between them and between these two poles. But today, I mean, as women, we have more possibilities in that in that way. I think we can more. It's still not easy to combine a career and. uh, personal life but I think there are more chances. I mean these women really really had it hard.
0: And what about portraying the sister of Julianne in Marianne and Julian based on the life of German revolutionary Ulrike Meinhof in Marianne and Julian that led you to want to be part of that film and your character?
3: Well it was not actually my character was not Ulrike Meinhof, it was Gudrun Enself. Right. Yeah. Uh, who was the other one? Um, yeah. Well, in both films, in uh, in um, um, Marion and Julian and in Rosa Luxemburg, Margarete von Trotter tried to see See, they were both very much um, hated by the public. Because one was a terrorist, the other one was um, ra- politically radical, you know. And uh, so they're... they're there's the story, for for example, Rosa Luxemburg, who was on the on a stamp even later. That the postman in Germany didn't want to um, deliver a post with her stamp, with her face on the stamp. Um, so she always wanted to portray the other side of this character. Uh, I don't want to call it the good side, but the human side. That they are not monsters. That they are not. Um, uh, we are out. You know, they were outcasts in some way afterwards. But um, you know, scrap that. Um, she just wanted to show the complexity of these characters and not just the public image, which was um, yeah, they were both hated mm. by the public.
0: And what is it about strong political women like Rosa Luxemburg and in Mariana Julian that draws you in?
3: Yeah, I did. I did like. I think this is my fourth maybe my fourth, the fifth real life character. I did, yeah, I did uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Marion and Julian was real and here von from Bingen was real, Anna Arendt was real. Right, this is my fifth character. Fifth uh, kind of, yeah. I, I mean, they are all people who who push the envelope. Mm. They are all women who in some way or another uh, did something extraordinary. And I think it is just fun to um, sort, of, sort of assimilate to them and uh, to research them and find out about them. and I mean, Gala is the only one of those... Yeah, Gala has not created anything herself, really. I mean, she created Dali, in a way, hmm. or she was part creator of Dali. Like Hannah Arendt and Rosa Luxemburg, they they themselves had become the center of attention and were you know, famous for their own writing and their own theories, um, but Gala was in a way in the background and, uh, just, um, helped to birth, uh, Dali, but still she did something extraordinary and, um, and it's fun to research different times and, uh, and women who, who just are so brave mm. and brave means that they also had a lot of fears and, uh, because otherwise you're not brave. And I, I think that's, that's really interesting uh, to, to find the humanity and, um, and the personal life of some people who you only knew, know publicly.
0: And what would you hope audiences to understand about Gala and her relationship with Dali?
3: Well, the first thing I think what I would really like that they would have fun in this film, because. For so Gala, uh, somebody asked me what would Gala say about this film, and I just said, <laughs> okay. "I think it would be for her another another party uh, <laughs> and to yeah it's, it's also to see to see behind to see behind the scenes, you know you know these public characters, uh Dali with a mustache and the way he became a superstar and gala and and to see the fragility of them. Actually, in in aging, and yeah, to 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 realize that that people like this are really like like the birds that have the the, the most wonderful colorful feathers. They are they are they're a wonderful addition to the world, even if they are sometimes hard to to grasp or to understand. And but that they also have uh, have this other side, this this fragile human. Side and uh, to see both, mm. that would be nice if people could see that.
0: And what was it like acting with Ben Kingsley as Dolly?
3: It was wonderful. I, I really loved it. It was absolutely wonderful. It was easy. It was it was fun. It was it was inspiring. It was yeah. I, it was very easy. It was it was just so nice. It was a really wonderful experience. I I really loved acting with him.
0: And with your very distinguished career, when you look in the mirror, what do you see?
3: What I see? (laughs) I don't know. I see. Uh, What do I see? Yeah, I, I, I I see somebody who looks different than in all the films. I don't look like any of the people I feel like in the films that I do. It's a different person Recognize myself.
0: And do you feel closer to any of your characters than the others?
3: Well, i tell you something. These characters that I play, they are such big people, you know? Mm. They are like, I mean, they kind of are an intellectual giant. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg was like an incredible, brave woman. Uh, So I always, I never feel I measure up to these people. Um, I think it's very hard to say. I I, I guess I, I... I um I can't say that. I think in the moment I play it there is always a part a part of the character that I feel very close to. Mm. And then yeah, they're also different. I mean Hildegard from Bingen is so this twelfth century nun who's lived, you know, in a cloister is so different from Gala who is, you know, flitting around parties. And still there is something in both of them that I yeah, that that is, in a way, I, I, I can feel. It's, it's, I, you know what? The older I get, the more mysterious acting gets to me, and uh, I, can't really, I can't really answer these things. I don't
0: know. Ha. Huh. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
3: That's great. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: And Daliland is out now in release. And coming up next the Palestine Laboratory, and what it has to do with author Antony Lowenstein's original research into, quote, making money from misery in his work, Disaster Capitalism. Hi, this is
1: Jack Shalom. For more than 50 years, the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza has been an ugly fact of life for Palestinians. But the fact of occupation has a much greater effect on the Israeli and world economy and politics than may be apparent at first glance. Now, in a new book called The Palestine Laboratory, author Antony Lowenstein shows in depth how Israel uses the occupied territories as a testing ground for its military and technological sectors and the worldwide implications of that. I'm very happy to be talking with the author of The Palestine Laboratory Anthony Lowenstein. Hi, Anthony. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Anthony,
4: what got you interested in writing this book? So, I've been writing and thinking about Palestine, I guess, for a long time and Israel. I'm Jewish. I was born in Australia, but I lived often overseas. I was based in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. I've been visiting Israel and Palestine since 2005, every three or four years, went to the West Bank and Gaza and elsewhere. And I think also probably underlying this was that I did a book a number of years ago called Disaster Capitalism, which wasn't about Palestine at all, but it was about people making money for misery uh, in war, yeah. in uh, mining, in different areas. And I think in the last years, and I guess maybe the stories around Pegasus, we might talk about that. Pegasus is the Israeli spyware that's found on lots of people's phones around the world. I started yeah. wanting to do work on an issue that wasn't just about the conflict itself i wanted to sort of see the bigger picture and i started looking into this and essentially what i was seeing and in my research was how the occupation really has been exported that what's happening in israel palestine is not staying there i was living in 2015 in south sudan what's happening there is horrific but it doesn't really spread around the world what's happening in palestine does not the conflict per se but the tools and technologies that Israel's been using for over half a century to control Palestinians is now found in the majority of countries in the world. As I found out, at least 130 nations have bought some form of Israeli defense equipment in the last decades. It's sort of a remarkable number, really. Let's be clear, then. Exactly
1: why is the book called The Palestine Laboratory?
4: What Israel's been doing for decades in the West Bank, in Gaza, and East Jerusalem, is fine-tuning ways to control and manage Palestinians. Now, that can be through a range of ways, everything from intelligence gathering to spyware to so-called smart walls, biometric tools, facial recognition in the last years. And often those tools are tested in Palestine on Palestinians first. And then what Israeli companies are doing, and in fact the Israeli state itself, as I show in the book, is that they market and advertise that around the world to other countries as battle-tested. In other words, to say it's worked wonderfully, so Israel says, in Palestine. It can also work incredibly well for you in your own country. You can also, not that they maybe say it like this, but what it means in practice is that people can then repress their own populations, their own minorities, dissidents, Mm -hmm. human rights activists, journalists, whatever. And this actually is a pretty effective sell that there are a lot of countries even ones that don't have relations with israel officially i'm talking about saudi arabia indonesia they have bought some form of israeli uh, defense equipment or spyware and they're using it in pretty horrible ways against their own population so israel itself both publicly and covertly is promoting its occupation as a positive, as something that could be Mm -hmm. copied or envied. So in a
1: way, Gaza is like the floor model. If you go to to buy a television set, the floor model is is there and you get to see how it works and decide if you want to buy
4: it yourself. Absolutely, but not just in Gaza, also in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, Uh In some ways, I guess what I try to talk about in the book is not just the tools and technologies in the simple money sense, but also what Israel is selling. Or trying to sell is not necessarily something financial. They're selling the idea of ethno nationalism. This idea of Israel as a Jewish supremacist state. Yes, there are non Jews in Israel, of course, and in, obviously in Palestine. But Jews are the priority. I mean, Israel proudly calls itself a Jewish state, proudly discriminates against non Jews. There are a lot of countries, and I talk particularly about nations like India. In the last 10 years since Prime Minister Modi has come into office in India, but is creating under Modi a Hindu fundamentalist state. Non-Hindus are discriminated against. There are literally anti-Muslim pogroms. And you've had Indian officials openly praise what Israel is doing in the West Bank by bringing in Jews to settle in Palestinian territory. Exactly the same what they're doing now in Kashmir, a Muslim majority area where they're bringing in many, many Hindus to try to Um, settle that land. And the reason that's important is, I don't think India is doing all this because of Israel. Of course, they're not. But they're inspired by them. And they talk about that openly. And to me, the the scary aspect of this and why I wrote this book partly was almost as a warning that ethno-nationalism is on the march. It's increasing in popularity. And the ultimate model, frankly, for years has been Israel. And that to me is worrying. You write
1: that in 2021, the Israeli arms sales were $11.3 billion. Now, how does that compare, do you know, to other countries like the U.S. as a percent of GDP?
4: Yeah, so the U.S. remains the world's biggest arms dealer. So well done, you. Well well done, America, by far, (laughs) by far. Israel's number 10 in the world. And there are obviously other countries before then, often Germany, France and others. So Israel's not number one. The difference, a fundamental difference, though, is that Israel has had for decades in its backyard an occupied population that are wow. indefinitely occupied. I mean, it's 56 years and counting. So Israel's not the number one arms dealer in the world, and I don't think ever will be. But it's on some issues such as cyber um, surveillance and spyware, Israel is very much in the top five, if not the top one, first, second, or third. That on that area, they are very, very um, you know, they're one of the best in the world, if you if you want to put it that way. The decision to make arms dealing
1: a major sector of Israel's economy goes back to Israel's founding, more or less, doesn't it?
4: It does. There's no doubt early on in the state's existence, David Ben-Gurion, the country's first prime minister, spoke about the need to make friends. Now, on the one hand, that's an uncontroversial thing. Of course, a new state needs to make friends. The difference was that how israel has done that pretty much from the late 50s but massively accelerated in the 1960s and to this day what israel has been doing for a long time is promoting its so-called counterinsurgency techniques that they learned in the west bank and gaza that you see lots of evidence in the 1970s 1980s uh, a lot of latin and south american dictatorships including some that were committing literal genocide in Guatemala, wanting and receiving Israeli government and private advice, how to fight these wars, how to train, how to build um, horrendously human rights abusing armies and militias, literal death squads. This is what Israel was doing. This is how it was making friends. And one of the best, although worst, examples of these alliances to me, and I have a big section in the book about this, is Mm -hmm. Israel and South Africa apartheid, which obviously Mm -hmm. ended in 1994. But it was more than just a defence deal. It was an ideological alignment. South African apartheid and Israel saw themselves both as nations facing down barbarism. They saw in South Africa, the white South African apartheid regimes thought that they were trying to survive amongst this horrible black population. Of course, that's what they said. And mm-hmm. in Israel, they were fighting against what they saw was this noble, not even noble, you know, this savage Palestinians down the road in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And you had many Israeli military leaders and, in fact, prime ministers who went to South Africa and they admired what South Africa was doing in the bantustans. Those Bandistans were basically nominally self-ruled black areas but were essentially had no real power at all and wanted to copy that in the West Bank. Um, and Israel, in fact, part of their model is very much based on South Africa to this day. And you also had South African leaders coming to Israel. There's an infamous case in, I think it was 1976, of South Africa's then Prime Minister, who was, by the way, during World War II, a Nazi supporter, not an unimportant point, being fated yeah. in Israel, supported. He went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, and you had Israeli leaders praising this guy, you know, we're in a fight for our existence. This is an ideological alignment. Well, you quote
1: uh, an Israeli advisor in Guatemala in the 80s as saying, I don't care what the Gentiles do with the arms. The main thing is that the Jews profit. I mean, this this seems crazy to me, even under their own terms, why, for example, did Israel sell arms to Chile's fascist, anti-Semitic military yeah. dictator, Augusto Pinochet, and likewise in the 80s, to the anti-Semitic junta in Argentina, where Jews were tortured, as yeah. it was well known?
4: You know, um, alliances with anti-Semitic, quasi-Nazi-like regimes, on the face of it, seems crazy. Why would you want to partner with countries that are, as you said, killing, torturing Jews, express anti-Semitic views? I mean, it's mad. But in a very real politic way, it makes perfect sense. There was really little to no moral consideration at all, then or now. Yeah. Now, yeah. I think when it comes to Israeli arms, they wanted friends. They also realized that after 1967, a growing numbers of countries expressed publicly and privately sometimes, their distaste with the occupation. They didn't support it. They thought it was totally inappropriate they opposed it and i think israel was worried about that it was worried about the potential growth of individuals around the world who or countries that may start opposing their existence opposing the occupation and in some ways i see the sale of a lot of these weapons and defense equipment as almost like an insurance policy then and now you know when Mm -hmm. you have now 130 plus countries in the world that have bought some form of your defense equipment are those countries very likely to start massively opposing you? No. Now, Israel today is a key inspiration for the global far right. And I mean, you just find even the current Israeli government um, under Netanyahu, the most far right governments in its history, is openly, not even secretly, openly befriending far right regimes around the world, meeting up often with groups that are openly fascist. I mean, the idea as someone, and I speak as someone who's a secular Jew, would not Mm -hmm. find that abhorrent. It endangers all of us when that is happening, when the self-described Jewish state is befriending fascists openly and covertly. It has to be called out. Absolutely, it does.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you that because, of course, you know, you can tell from my last name, Shalom, I'm Jewish. I mean, when I I look at the list of... Dictators, Papa Doc and Baby Doc in Haiti, uh, Suharto in Indonesia, Samosas in Nicaragua, Rio, Rios Mont in Guatemala, dictators in Uganda, Togo, Mali, Saudi Arabia. It's just uh, an amazingly awful list that, as a Jew, I'm, I'm totally ashamed of. And this has been a policy through all the ruling parties in Israel. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I, I want to ask, does it rattle you? How, how it do you does. cope with that
4: it does rattle me and it's one of the reasons amongst many that i think that the not just that the occupation has morally broken vast parts of the israeli jewish state it's also in my view broken the moral backbone of much of the jewish diaspora in the last decades mm-hmm. without which israel would not survive but i think there is definitely a Moral reckoning coming. The idea that Israel claims that the only way we could survive in the past and now is to partner with the worst dictators, mass murderers, and genociders in the world, I think is a completely not just illogical argument, but simply wrong. Yes, America also sells weapons to horrible regimes, so do the French and others. Of course they do. But I would like to think, although clearly I'd be wrong, that Jews with our history in the 20th century and frankly before then would be a little bit more cognizant of the the price that one pays both practically and morally for partnering with these horrific regimes and yet here we are and I think there is one of the things that's come out in writing this book how few people knew the extent the extent of this collusion with all these regimes, if nothing else, hopefully more people not just talk about that, but start articulating that you know this is the legacy of Israel, 75 years on since its birth. This is the legacy.
1: Let's get down to more specifics. The day-to-day life of Palestinians is controlled not only by the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, but also very much by private contractors. What does that consist of exactly?
4: So in the last... I'd say two decades, Israel has increasingly privatized or outsourced its occupation. And what does that mean practically? From day to day, when a Palestinian in the West Bank, for example, goes through a checkpoint, and there might be a soldier there or a private security guard, they're not going to know the difference. And frankly, for them, it doesn't make a difference, right? I mean, they're going to be Mm -hmm. maybe verbally assaulted or physically abused by those people. For them, there's. No accountability, whether it's an IDF soldier or, or a private security guard. So but the checkpoints are privatised? Some of them are, not all. Some of them are. Mm-hmm. There's a growing use by Israel of facial recognition technology and biometric data gathering, Hebron particularly, but elsewhere that's often run by other Israeli companies or international companies. And just in the fact the last few months, um, listeners can Google this if they haven't seen this, Amnesty International put out a very interesting and relevant report looking at how Israel has massively developed and expanded a biometric data gathering system in Hebron. And Hebron often, which is, for those who don't know, one of the major Palestinian cities in the West Bank, there are roughly 1,000 Jewish settlers living in the heart of that city who are the most extreme Jewish fundamentalists have spent time there. And some of these people openly expressed desires for genocide. I mean, these are the most extreme Jewish settlers mm. you can imagine. But mm. within the heart of that city, so Israel can gather all this information to essentially monitor every single person going in and out, walking down the street, entering a checkpoint, talking about adults, kids, anybody. They're using increasingly sophisticated technology. And I do know because I write about it in the book and I see it more and more happening that that is the kind of technology which is being exported because a lot of other countries want to do exactly the same thing.
1: Excuse me, you're talking about facial recognition? For example, facial or recognition
4: software. or biometric data gathering, absolutely, which, of course, mm. is increasingly a way that states want to control their populations. And But as I say in the book, in the West in the last four or five years, particularly since Trump was president, there's been this massive anti-china sentiment and i don't speak as a defender of the chinese regime by any means but if we're Mm -hmm. worried about the export of chinese repression around the world and we should be we should be frankly as if not more worried about israeli surveillance tech being exported because it's far more ubiquitous this is not even a comparison not even a comparison around the world israel's Mm -hmm. israeli technology is far more ubiquitous so the day-to-day reality of palestinians in the west bank or indeed in gaza who obviously are not so much going through checkpoints because they're um, in an open-air prison, but they're being monitored by drones or various other forms of surveillance.
1: You talk about the Israeli tech used to control the Palestinian population is being used all around the world to control migrants to other countries, including the very building of border walls
4: and the deployment of drones to surveil the seacoast to keep yeah. migrants out. In the coming years and decades, where almost certainly going to see huge numbers of climate refugees coming particularly from low low low-lying areas Bangladesh or parts of Asia or elsewhere and a lot of countries are western countries I'm talking about here are looking to find ways basically to keep these people out now what does that involve it's surveillance technology so-called smart walls uh, drones a range of technologies and like as I give and report various examples in the book, and I'll just give two now, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, the U.S. has deployed very sophisticated Israeli surveillance towers across mm-hmm. the border. And that was part one of our conversation with
1: Anthony Lowenstein, author of The Palestine Laboratory, published by Verso. Next time, we'll return with part two of our conversation. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
0: Hey,
2: Yeah, hey man, listen, whenever I'm in New York, I'm Tommy Chong, I kind of created teaching Chong, and I listen to Arts Express non-stop, because it's the only show that really tells you what's going on.
0: taking the Arts Express over to Red, Iowa and Peter Wise sitting down with Iowa Blues Hall of Fame musician Pat Hazel, looking back on his life and playing some of his music as well over at the local Burlington pub, The Blues Shop.
2: This is Peter Wise from Red, Iowa I'd like to introduce uh, my friend uh, Pat Hazel. A stupendous musician from the Midwest who's been playing for many decades now, especially blues, but also has investigated everything from electronic music to folk music in the former USSR. Pat comes from Burlington, Iowa. He's well known. He's a member of the uh, Iowa Blues Hall of Fame and has a lot to say and a lot of knowledge about music. So with the development of American blues, did you have that kind of atomization? From the deep south or the delta, or where each town had its own special. No, I don't know that about. I don't know that about uh,
5: American blues. I, mm-hmm. I think there, there must be some of that. Almost, especially if it's a population of people that did not, that stayed pretty much in one area, and then you probably have some of that. I mean. They're like Appalachian different Appalachian music. For huh? It's
2: like Appalachian music.
5: They're definitely different styles mm-hmm. of music, uh, depending uh, on where you're at in uh, in, a, in the South. complete compared to, like, the music you would hear in
2: Louisiana will be different than the music you hear in Kansas City. But it's more likely to be. Uh uh, small-townish, like in the Appalachians, where you're separated by geographical obstacles. Would yeah. You, would you say that's true?
5: It could be, yeah, uh, and also you, you got probably a lot more influence in Appalachia of the uh, white Scottish-Irish Scottish, people, yeah. yeah, I mean, really a lot more of mm-hmm. that kind of, of thing going on. but. You have that down in the deep south too. I'd say one of the big differences. Now I don't know. I'm I've not very little, no experience basically of eastern Appalachia at all. Mm-hmm. I've never been there, but I know down south how hot and humid it can get. Mm-hmm. And and I I came to the conclusion that if you're going to play music down there. It would naturally lend itself to slow blues.
2: <laughs> Well, oh, I think I said, yeah, sure. It, it reflects its environment, I guess. You were keeping Mother Blues going. You were part of Mother Blues,
5: and we would just kind of slowly morph the two together. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's wonderful. And you were even fronted for Jefferson Airplane when you were in. The, yeah, and Led Zeppelin and, and Led Zeppelin too. Yeah, and, and there were a lot of
5: there were many many others uh, that we that we opened shows for. Yeah, well, we shared and, that
2: Led Zeppelin. Uh, Experience oh, yeah. <laughs> something I will never forget to tell you. Yeah, sure. yeah, Led Zeppelin on. Yeah. Um, so uh, why don't we listen to some of your music, uh, if it's okay with you? Um, we got one piano. We're, we're sitting in the blue blue what blue room?
5: Well, the blue shop.
2: The blue shop yeah. in, in Burlington, Iowa, and uh, it, it's it's. Uh, vacated right now because uh, um, Patrick's son has shifted his blues club over across the street to a place called The Washington. And before you start playing, can you tell people where to find your music? Well, uh,
5: I have a website, which I, have to this day, don't know how to work. <laughs> you know, I'm just... I don't have a lot of patience with, with the internet. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the... Uh, but you could go to to uh, iTunes or what are some of the other Spotify. I think I think they're on some of the stuffs on Spotify, mm-hmm.
2: SoundCloud maybe.
5: Maybe I don't know <laughs> the 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 uh, and you can go to Reverb Nation wow. has a nice lineup of songs that uh, I recommend.
2: You don't that, play live anymore. Is it? Is that correct? Very, very rarely. Very rarely. Okay, so yeah. you'd have to come to Burlington basically to hear you live?
5: <laughs> unless unless somebody comes along and, and really floats me a ride, <laughs> some good pay and he puts up the equipment for me. <laughs> So, Not being very famous, that uh, is difficult. To,
2: uh, right, right, right. Well, uh, fast gonna play some Boogie Woogie, I think. Or are you gonna? Well, I'll play.
5: Well. I'll just play some blues. Okay. I, I gotta play that's something that fits into my seventy-seven-year-old speed.
2: All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm right behind. You.
5: What in the world
2: But okay. Do you have any final comment? Do you have any advice for anybody to want to uh, get into blues, you uh, you're kind of blues? Traditional blues, con- uh, I don't want to say conventional blues, none of them are, but I mean, uh, uh, the way it was in, in, in the 60s at least.
5: <laughs> the 60s? Well, there was a huge divide mm. in the 60s mm. uh, with the, uh, you know, I don't know what the the British invasion or what, but uh, blues was really generated out of the black community and the black community changed, really changed in the 60s and uh, went away from playing straight blues, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, the white blues that replaced it was a very poor replacement,
2: although it it did, but... But it it, it at least led to other people learning about the traditional blues, delta blues, rural
5: blues. It did do that, I, I'll, I'll admit that. But at the same time, it, uh, what came out was the guitar blues. Uh-huh. And the guitar-based blues was not, the, the blues I grew up on was the big band blues and also the, the blues uh, that was all generated out of the piano. Mm-hmm. And the piano come, dates way back, in the old logging camps and all that kind of stuff but the, the piano blues is a different different form hmm. uh and i i i think you got to really dig back always a and listen to the old stuff mm-hmm. listen to a lot of stuff from the 1920s and the 30s 1940s
2: cool yeah so listen uh we're going to wrap this up and hopefully we'll have more interviews or conversations here sure. it's more conversational if you if you consent to that sometime, That's I do a variable fine, encyclopedia. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, so, uh, Pat Hazel, uh, what more should we say, uh, Burlington, Iowa? Um, uh, we can talk about more history of yours and playing, I think, maybe in the 70s next time. I'd be interested in your uh, impressions of Paul Butterfield when he played up here. Um,
5: yeah, I that's didn't. Like, yeah. Uh, I I heard I saw Butterfield uh, in uh, where the hell did I see him? I, uh, Iowa City, probably. No, hmm. I think I think maybe it was Grinnell or mm, okay. someplace like that. Newton, Iowa, or something. weird. Oh, that's amazing. But <laughs> somewhere different. And uh, uh, but uh, Butterfield, yeah, I I did see him, but. And he was an influence. I mean, we did a couple of Butterfield songs back in the That's 60s. That's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, another one was the, uh, uh, oh, uh, the am I thinking of that band out of San Francisco? Steve Miller band? No. Nick Gravanides was in it. Oh, Electric Flag.
2: Oh. Electric Flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: And they had some of the old Butterfields gang was in that they did.
2: band. did, yeah, Martin Afflin for one. Yeah, and the... the um, Mike Bloomfield. Yeah, of course, Mike Bloomfield. Right. So, how did you avoid all that? I mean, there were some sad stories with uh, the fate of Butterfield and Mike Bloomfield. Were you lucky, or was
5: Well, it, well
2: it had, that had a lot to do with drugs. Yeah, and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah.
5: And I was never a big, a big one for drinking a lot of alcohol. I was never had that problem.
2: Well, that's great. You know, never, you're here never. and you're not.
5: <laughs> well. I just, what didn't interest me that much. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as far as getting a heavy, heavy, I did my share of drugs, but it was
2: not uh, habitual. Good. Hey, okay. Okay. We're going to wrap this up. So I'm going to say goodbye to Pat. Incredible. I want to thank you. Honored to be here. Well, thank there. you for your interest. In oh, sure. To do it. Yeah.